Hello and welcome to Obiter Dicta, Bloomsbury Professionals podcast on all things law and tax with me, Rachel Sherlock, and also Gronya McMahon. In the first of a two-part episode, we speak to Helen Johnson BL, author of A Guide to Trademark Law and Practice in Ireland, as she breaks down the do's and don'ts of trademark law, simplifies the process and provides valuable tips for practitioners. Helen is a practicing barrister specializing in intellectual property. She also lectures at the Law Society of Ireland, where she helped to design the postgraduate courses on intellectual property and trademark law. Today, we are sitting down with Helen to chat about trademark law, an area which some practitioners tend to shy away from, but we hope in this podcast to break down the technical aspects of trademarks and simplify them. We hope you enjoy this episode. Helen, firstly, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. We're very excited to have you. Um, Firstly, could we start with chatting maybe about what intellectual property is? Well, thank you for having me, Rachel and Gronia. It's it's lovely to be be asked to contribute uh, to Obiter Dicta. So yeah, intellectual property really covers creations of the mind. They're all intangible rights, really. And uh, it's an umbrella term and people might not know the different facets of IP that fall in under that umbrella. So a lot of times solicitors will come to me or clients will come to me and they'll tell me they want to trademark an invention or copyright an invention and they have the language all wrong. And I think especially for solicitors, it's very important that they would understand the language and they may be new to IP. So it's completely understandable that they're not going to get it first time round. But when we talk about IP, a lot of people will know the main ones. The main ones would be copyright, trademarks, patents, designs, but it also covers um, things like confidential information, domain names, passing off, trade secrets and image rights in those countries where image rights are recognised. So it's a kind of a suite of rights that are tied up under the uh, intellectual property umbrella and they all have different uh, durations within which they can be enforced and then some have to be registered and others don't. So, for example, copyright doesn't have to be registered. That can arise automatically. And I suppose the first thing in my book is what I do is bring people down, give them a whistle-stop tour of the different types of IP. So copyright will cover different types of works. You could have artistic works, you could have literary works, musical works. There's rights in some databases. Um, Designs will cover... The design that's applied to an actual object, not the object itself. Trademarks, which we come to in due course, effectively cover brands. Patents are hugely interesting because they cover inventions, you know, all novel, cutting edge stuff can be really, really interesting. And then we all know, we think of trade secrets, we think of Coca-Cola, uh, and domain names, so you can go as far as you want with those. So um, it is very important, I would say, first things first, if it's listeners taking on a client, who is coming to them wanting advice on IP, the solicitor should really know what they're talking about in terms of the different types of protection that's available. So that's always a good starting point. Um, and to give an example, if it's useful for the listeners, I always take the example of the iPad. So in the iPad, you might have the technology and it might be patented. The copyright will deal with the underlying source codes and with uh, like the Apple logo, for example, is an artistic work under copyright law. The Apple logo is also a trademark. It's protected that way as well. And then you might have design rights in the graphic user interface. So that just shows how the different rights uh, all overlap with each other. 
And another example, because it's timely, is Barbie. Like there's so much IP in Barbie. It's unbelievable. And in Ken, in fairness to him. So I was reading an article recently. I didn't know that the first Barbie, the doll, was patented as a prototype in the early 60s. And then when you come to the name and the colours there, there's about 20 pan-European trademarks for Barbie. The actual shade of pink that we all know and love as girlies, uh, that's protected as a colour over in America. Uh, so again, it just shows the interaction between the different types of IP and why it's so important to understand them from the outset. Uh, certainly a, a solicitor's dream at the moment with the Barbie movie. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Helen, you're briefed quite a bit, as you were saying, uh, in this area by solicitors. And um, I suppose for someone maybe in general practice, they might go, oh my God, I don't know anything about it. Do you find it's a very technical area? I mean, it can be. You can get totally bogged down in it. But once you understand what you're talking about, it becomes quite easily. I mean, patents because they deal with inventions and the way they're drafted, they are hugely technical. And the people, patent attorneys who, they're highly skilled individuals, I would leave all that to them. I wouldn't go near uh, the actual, I suppose, mechanics of how you would come about getting a grant of a patent. Trademarks, they're really, they're not rocket science. They're, they, once you understand the law, they're all creatures of statute, all the different types of IP apart from passing off. But once you understand the law, it's really quite simple. And there's just so much information out there in terms of what the different IP offices have on their websites and everything that once you do the preparation you'd be fine talking to any uh, client about things. Uh, I think a lot of solicitors too you know they get nervous because it doesn't cross their desk and I know in practice I'm on the Midlands circuit and people will always say to me God I'd say there's not much call now for IP on the Midlands but you'd be hugely surprised I get so much uh, IP work from the Midlands circuit and the solicitors are all up to speed fair play to them so it's great. That's testament too to the Law Society who offers such great courses in IP as well. That's a great point. And so I was wondering, could you just give us a general introduction to what trademarks are and their importance? Yeah, so I suppose effectively they are badges of origin and they are maybe signs or symbols that identify a party's particular goods or services. And it's only from studying it that you realise like that we are all bombarded with trademarks on a daily basis and we don't even know like when you get up in the morning you look at your phone it's an apple phone it's a, a samsung phone that's straight away you open your fridge you see your milk you see your butter whatever trademarks are hitting you in the face and you're meeting them all throughout the day when you go for your coffee when you log on to your computer until the very end of the night when you turn off your phone or turn off your snazzy designer lamp whatever you may have so really they're out there all over the place but they are indications of origin, badges of origin, that's what trademark law and trademark cases would talk about or to describe them as being. Um, and they are also indicators of quality and that's why they're, they're really important. So then what makes a good trademark? Yeah, this is really important as well, really important. Uh, a good trademark basically has to be distinctive. I have so many clients who will come to me with a fabulous product or a fabulous service and they tell me the trademark and I just want to take to the bed because it's completely depressing. It just basically describes what it is that the product does or the service does. And that is not what you want at all. So you want something snappy, something catchy, something that the public are going to remember because that's what they're going to identify your brand by. So the snazzier and catchier, the better. Uh, and we all know, I mean, in Ireland, Guinness is iconic, huge brand with the harp, Tato. And then we know the world's top brands, Apple, Nike, McDonald's, BMW. 
Uh, they're all they're all pretty iconic and they're all catchy. The other thing to bear in mind is the different types of trademarks. So there's the conventional trademarks that everybody will know about. So that's words and logos or words and logos together. And I think they're thinking of a Big Mac, even though it's not near lunchtime. But like McDonald's, you have the word, which is obviously known the world over. You have the Golden Arches logo, again, known the world over. The minute you see it on a road, you know exactly what, what's, what's there. And you have the two of them together. So they're very much the conventional marks. But uh, recently, actually, the European trademark law has expanded. So it's more possible now than ever to file different types of marks. And what people listening might not know is that, you know, shapes can be a trademark. Colors can be a trademark. We spoke about the Barbie pink there a minute ago. Uh, the Tiffany blue might be another color that's protected. Sounds can be trademarks. There's 260 sounds, I think, registered at the European uh, IP office. Uh, one of which is the Tarazan yell, which I won't repeat now, but like that, that's a sound trademark. And then you have motion trademarks. There's multimedia trademarks, which are images and sounds together, position trademarks, pattern trademarks, which you'd see a lot of the fashion houses might register the Gucci's and the Louis Vuittons. And you can have holograms. And one of the most recent, I suppose, ones to come on stream, which I found hugely interesting, is that Apple in Germany was able to register the layout of their store as a trademark. Because when you walk into an Apple store anywhere, they're effectively pretty much the same. And a lot can be said for maybe Sephora or Mac or the makeup brands. So that's kind of a newer form of, of trademark that we're seeing. But it's hugely interesting in terms of what you can register. And then there are issues in that there are other types of very wacky trademarks out there, like taste trademarks or smell trademarks. Um, there's a trademark registered in Europe, which is the smell of cut grass applied to tennis balls, which is so random. It's the only one that got through. There were seven um, smell trademarks applied for in Europe, and that was the only one that got through. And more and more, we're seeing applications for tactile trademarks, so the feel of something. But the technology hasn't caught up with that. So in Europe, anyway, at the Pan-European office, the technology isn't there really for gustatory, olfactory or tactile marks, but it's only a matter of time before they catch up. So that's very far removed from the words and the logos. And it just shows the amount of, um, I suppose, the scope for creativity for people who want to file trademarks, what, what, what they can look at. Wow, it's uh, definitely an area that seems to have lots of interest. I wonder if we could talk maybe about the importance of registering trademarks, Helen, particularly for practitioners who may have clients that come in and they're not sure of whether to, you know, what way to advise them or not. Could you maybe give us a little whistle stop tour of why we should perhaps register a trademark? Sure. Well, I suppose effectively in Ireland, we'll speak about Ireland. In Ireland, there is really kind of a dual system for the protection of trademarks or a parallel system. So, Firstly, you would have unregistered trademarks and they arise in trade. So the minute I start trading under a brand name, I'm building up goodwill and that's an unregistered trademark right in the name. And it's unregistered trademark, um, trademarks are protectable by, protected by passing off, which is the common law right. But then you have registered trademarks and they're creatures of statute, uh, registered trademarks under the Irish Trademark Act of 1996. It's a registered and recognized property right. A registered trademark has a presumption of validity. It's proof of ownership. Uh, it's effectively an asset. So it's much better to have a registration there rather than relying on unregistered rights. And we see this 
I suppose more so when it comes to enforcing rights. It's much easier if you were to go into the, go into the high court in Dublin and look to enforce uh, a registered right via infringement proceedings rather than relying on passing off for unregistered rights. Because in terms of passing off, there's particular three-step tests that you have to meet and you need a mammoth amount of evidence. Whereas it's not it's by no means a slam dunk bringing in a trademark infringement case, but if you have a registration, it just makes the job a lot easier. And then also, as I said, it's an asset for whoever the, the owner is and, you know, it can be exploited. You can license it and bring in an income stream and you can also use it as a security interest. So it's really beneficial to have a registration there and let no solicitor or no applicant ever be afraid of the process. As I say, it's not rocket science. Once you have the basics down, uh, you will get through the process if your mark is registrable to begin with. Um, and there's so much guidance and help out there, uh, uh, you know, on the particular, in the different IP offices. So I would say to any solicitor, maybe have a look at the European, the EU IPO, which is the European Trademark Office, because they have a load of information on there. They have a load of videos and specifically they have guidelines that bring you through every step of the process. So it's pretty foolproof. Their guidelines are phenomenal. The Irish office has a lot of information on its website as well. Um, and you can file online in the Irish office now. Uh, you can file online in Europe as well. And then the last one I'd mention is the World Intellectual Property Office, WIPO. And that kind of deals with international marks and all types of, of IP. So again, they're all really good resources to tap into before you bring a client into the office. That's really useful. And I suppose uh, one key piece of information that I picked up there was that really you shouldn't shy away from it if you're a practitioner. Exactly. So Helen, if, if say uh, as a pr practitioner, I was going to go ahead and register a trademark for a client, what should I consider? And I suppose, please talk us through how to register one. Um, sure. I know there's obviously different specifications, et cetera, but in, in high level terms, would it, would it be possible that you might talk us through that? Yeah, sure. So I mean, the first thing I suppose, um, if you're a solicitor, do your bit of background uh, research so you know what you're talking about. But in terms of what you need to get from your client, well, you need to find out from them what is it that they want to register as a trademark. And I went through the plethora of available trademarks there, you know, not just a, a word or not just a graphic. So what is it that they want to protect? Where do they want to protect it? They're, they're the two main things. Uh, in terms of what they want to protect, I go through that now in a minute, but, you know, uh, they need to pick their mark and then they need to decide what that mark is going to be used on. Maybe what they're using it on presently, but also what they use it on in the future. And then in terms of where they want to protect it, uh, there's various different options open to them. So say you have an Irish client coming into you. They may just want to protect their particular good or service in Ireland. They may not see themselves expanding. And in that regard, they could file an application solely at the Irish Intellectual Property Office. Uh, if they see themselves maybe, you know, going to mainland Europe with their product and they might be in a couple of countries there as well as being in Ireland, um, uh, there's a pan-European trademark. So that would be the most appropriate there. And it could be filed at the European Intellectual Property Office, the EU IPO. And that's basically one filing and it gives you protection throughout the 27 member states it's really cost effective like a one-stop shop and um, so i mean that's really where i would send the majority of my clients unless they're completely domestic and then you'll have clients you'll have always have clients who'll come in and say to you well i want a global trademark and i'm like well there's no such thing you know uh, but there is an international trademark 
Um, but what you would need to file an international trademark is one of the ones we've mentioned before. So you need a base registration, maybe one that's in Ireland or one that would be a pan-European one. And then you can file your international registration. And the beauty of that is it covers hundreds of countries. So you can pick the territories of interest to you. So, you know, you may have somebody who's working in Cape Verde, wants to sell stuff there. You may have somebody who's in the, the Middle East. Uh, we always see the States, Canada, Australia, uh, Russia, places like that. So that, that would be the particular office where you would file that application. And again, somebody mightn't want Ireland or Europe at all. They may just say, all my business is in the US. I want you to file a US application for me. Uh, if you are filing a US application, we're not qualified over here, obviously, to be advising on US law. So you'd always get a local attorney, attorney over there. Uh, there are lots of hoops to jump through over there in terms of showing that your mark has been used in commerce over there before you even get a registration. And there's a lot of paperwork to deal with throughout the lifetime of the trademark over there. A trademark lasts for 10 years, I should say that. It can be renewed indefinitely once it's not attacked. But uh, in the States, yeah, there is a lot of stuff to do. And in the Middle East, uh, there's a lot of red tape in the Middle East. So again, uh, you would need to get attorneys on the ground for your client. So it all comes back as solicitors, I suppose, to, you know, taking very, very in-depth instructions. But firstly, what is the mark? What's it going to be used on? Where is it going to be used? And I mean, I can go into other pre-filing considerations and stuff if needs be, but they're they the fundamentals. And there's a lot to think about, but again, it's just a matter of sitting down and getting as much information as you can from the client. Yeah, you said maybe going into a few more of those pre-filing considerations. Are there any other kind of main ones that should be considered? Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, decide on, on what your mark is. And I know people can just twist themselves inside out coming up with marks and they have branding experts guiding them. And uh, they, they come to me and they've you know been through months and months of coming up with their brand and coming up with their logo. They come to me absolutely delighted with themselves. I look at the brand and go, oh my God, I love the graphics. That's fabulous. Uh, but the first thing is, is that nobody has checked if that particular mark is free to use or if it's free to register. So that's first things first, what you need to do or what you should advise any client to do or what any applicant should do is to try and conduct as many clearance searches as possible. Now, what does that mean? Well, most IP offices, they all have an IP register then most of them are publicly accessible. So really, you need to be going onto the trademark registers and looking for words that are identical to your trademark or words that are similar to your trademark. There are professional companies, I should say, that carry out these searches for you if you want to pay them the money, and it's, it, it is really money well spent. Um, but it's really important to clear the rights as much as you can in advance. You're never going to clear, like no, no search is ever going to be exhaustive, but start with the registers in your main countries of interest and the particular goods and services that you, you you want to protect your brand for. It's also possible to have common law searches carried out. So again, you'll have professional entities who will search, you know, trade directories, dictionaries online um, to see what, what they can find that may clash with your proposed mark. But again, those rights are never exhaustive. But it is really, really important, firstly, free to use, free to register. You don't want to go on the market you're on the market a week and then you're in the high court looking at an injunction. And similarly, you don't want to go to market, then decide you're going to apply to register your trademark and it's been opposed all over the place. Uh, and you're looking then at a rebrand when you've only just hit the shelves. So, you know, preparation here is key. Try to clear as many rights as you can before you go anywhere near the market. 
So yet the most important thing I would say to anybody before they go anywhere near the market is to clear the rights as best as you can. You're never going to get 100% clearance, but it's really, really vital and it'll ward off the necessity to rebrand or to be dealing with uh, litigation when you're only starting out um, in your infancy as a business. Uh, goods and services are another thing that really need a lot of consideration. So again, for people who don't know, you've decided on your mark, but what are you going to use it on? Now, you may already be operational and you know what your goods are used on or your services used in respect of or the mark, the, the particular service at issue. But you also need to, I suppose, look into the future and see what it might be used on in the future. Because when you file your application for a trademark and you have your goods and services set out, you may not have them all in there and you can't add to it. So if you were to use your mark on goods and services that you haven't covered off, uh, and you want to add new ones, that will be a new filing. So you're better off to try and put everything into the pot at the very beginning and cover as much as you can. Now, you can't go too wild there because there's a principle in trademark law called use it or lose it. So you have basically five years uh, from registration to use your trademark on the goods and services that you may have protected. So it's, I suppose, a balancing act. You want to put in as much as you can, but also you don't have stuff in there that you're never going to use your mark on because then your mark can become vulnerable to attack. And sorry, just when I talk about uh, goods and services, there is a particular classification that that uh, applies and that's the NICE classification. And it has 45 classes. So the first classes, one to 35 relate to goods uh, and it covers a load of things like cosmetics might be in class three, pharmaceutical and medi medical goods, veterinary goods, they're in class five. The main one I would see would be class 25, which is clothing, footwear, headgear. And then we've all the foodie classes. They run from class 29 up to 33 and cover everything from burgers to booze. Uh, and then you go into the services and they're from class 36 to 45. Uh, and again, online, you can go in and you can check what your particular goods or services, what, what classes they might fall into. So that's another kind of bit of important prep work uh, to, to carry out at the outset. And then the last thing I suppose I would always say is, well, who is the applicant going to be? Are you a sole, you know, are you a sole trader? Is there a company there? Uh, it is a particular bugbear of mine that a lot of IP offices don't check on the ability of the applicant to hold property. So we see property being registered in a business name, for example, or in the name of an unincorporated association that can't hold property. Uh, so it's important as well to file the application in the name of an entity, natural or legal, that has the ability to hold property, seeing as the trademark is a property right. Uh, and finally, costs. Obviously, if you're starting out, uh, budget might be tight. It's completely different if you're on the go for years and you're expanding all over the place. But the different offices have different costs. Irish office is quite cheap, but the way it examines trademarks can make it a bit more laborious and it's harder to get through the the uh, application or the examination process. But I always come back to the EU IPO, the pan-European filing, 27 member states, really cost effective. So I always find that that's probably the best one for clients, to be honest. But they're just like, that's just, I suppose, an overview of what needs to be teased out with the clients when you're bringing them in uh, for a consultation. There's a lot to go through. But again, it's completely manageable. And you spoke a little bit about the different markets and the different areas that you can register a trademark in. But can I ask what might be the particular considerations such as like, why would someone just want to register in Ireland or uh, you mentioned not registering in Ireland, registering in America, those those kinds of things. Can you just give us a little bit of information about that? 
Yeah, well, I suppose really it's where the, the, the main markets are. So you may have somebody, you know, who's dealing in artisan goods that are flying off the shelves down in Kerry. And like, they're not going to need, a, well, unless they start to export, they're not going to need a pan-European trademark or they're not going to need an American uh, a trademark in the States. So that, I mean, if it's really just Irish-centered, your business is totally Irish-focused, I would say, well, yeah, go to the Irish office. Um, because again, it's quite cheap and you don't need rights, rights beyond that. But, uh, the majority of clients that I would deal with would have, you know, they would do a lot in mainland Europe. So as I say, the EU IPO is the most cost effective. They're one stop shop, all territories covered. So the only problem is Brexit. Now the UK is no longer covered. So, uh, again, a lot of Irish companies may need to protect their mark in the UK. And the UK IPO has a manual there, a manual of trademarks, and that will bring you down through everything as well. It's a very useful guidance. Um, but we will see that a lot. You know, you might have an Irish um, client who will file in Ireland and the UK and won't need to go beyond that and won't need to look at Germany, France by way of a pan-European filing. And then, as I say, we have the, the international um, the international method. It's called the Madrid system. Uh, it's administered by WIPO. And that's just really, really handy because some businesses are kind of quirky in and of themselves. They may be in one country on one side of the world and one country on the other side of the world. And they may just need protection in those two uh, countries. And that's the beauty of the international system is that you can pinpoint and pick the markets of interest to you. And you can add on countries in that. So if I start out with a business in Ireland and America, but it transpires then that I'm doing a lot in China, or the Middle East or uh, Australia, I can add those on, I can designate them subsequently to my international registration. So that's the beauty of that. But I think people, especially when they see or think of international marks, can become a bit wary and fearful. But again, it's nothing to be fearful of. The only thing I would say is for clients and budgets, that if you do hit any obstacles in those given countries, you're going to need an attorney on the ground over there. So that's maybe something to consider. Helen, when it comes to the use, though, of trademarks, there are a number of things I know that we should consider. Could you maybe talk us through those? Yeah. So I spoke there about the, you know, use it or lose it. So, I mean, really, it should be used for the goods and services that you have um, protected it for. That's not to say it can't be used for other goods and services that you may veer off into. But when we talk of use of a trademark, in order that your trademark isn't attacked or doesn't become vulnerable to attack on the grounds of use, it's really important to use it in the form in which it is registered. So, for example, if I have a two-worded mark that's in a funky green font, for example, uh, there's no point in me taking that two-worded mark, adding on a third word and changing the font to pink and using it that way, because that won't be deemed use of what I have registered. Now, lots of brands need refreshes and, you know, rebranding happens all the time. But if that's where you're at, you, then you may need to look at filing a new application. So always remember you should use it in the form in which it's registered or as close as possible to that form because you don't want it to become vulnerable. If you have applied for a load of goods and services and you put the kitchen sink in there at the outset, but it transpires that your business just didn't end up going down that route, you can always take those goods and services out. And again, that removes any element of vulnerability or people coming after you. Because just say you are, you know, if, if somebody tries to enforce their trademark, one of the first things the defense should be thinking of is, well, have they used it on all the goods they have protection for and show me the use, you know. So it's a really kind of easy 
defence to employ if the, if the mark being relied on is of the right age. So the, take out what you don't use and make sure that you use it in the form in which it is registered. That, that, that's, I suppose, the best advice I could give there. We're seeing more and more use cases coming on stream. So, um, yes, it is important. Would we, could we go back to the point, uh, which I found really interesting, where you said it's really important that we check that the company is or the person can hold property. Yeah. Do you maybe elaborate on that? Because I think that's a really important point that we might. Yeah, consider. it is. It's just I've seen it arise in, in, in practice a lot uh, where somebody might have a registration, say, and it's registered in the business name rather than Helen Johnson trading as X. It's registered in the name of X. But X doesn't have the legal capacity to hold property. So where does that leave you then? In my mind, arguably, the registration is void ab initio because it's filed in the name of an entity that can't hold property. Uh, it's a property right. Uh, I, I have had um, a couple of uh, spats over this with colleagues and they'll just go, oh, look, you know, it was just an error. By operation of law, really, it should have been Helen Johnson trading as X. Um and they'll try to rectify things. But I think you have to get it right at the start. If a mark is wrong at the start, I think it's fundamentally flawed. That's my view. Um, at the UK office are very good on their application form, you know, for people who are non-lawyers. They will basically say, do you have the hold, do you have the ability to hold property? And, you know, a trading name cannot be the applicant. Is there a company there or is there a natural person? So, no, I think, it's, it, you know, it's, it's fundamental. People don't really even think about it. But... Again, I've had things land on my desk and somebody will say, oh, my client's trademark has been infringed. And I'm like, mm, don't really fancy your chances of trying to enforce that because there's issues with who's holding the property. Uh, and again, it's not stuff you think of really unless you're wearing a legal hat. But I think it is really, really important. And as I said, you know, I might file a trademark in the morning and then set up a company down the line. I could register or I could then maybe license the trademark that's in my name to the company and that will be an income stream for me. So it's really important to consider who the applicant should be and it may warrant a conversation with the tax advisor as well. As you said, you, you want to start out uh, out correctly and it, and it seems like you really need to be very correct in, in all your paperwork here. It, it is a growing area. It's one that I suppose maybe some general practitioners might be a little scared of. Uh, I'd say if I, if, if I was starting out, I might be like, Oh God, I'll just, and I would probably take your advice and send it to someone else. But, but at the same time, it's a really interesting area. And so therefore I was wondering, uh, is it difficult to qualify as a trademark agent? Because it, it seems like it's a growing area and one that may, may expand. Yeah, definitely. It's huge. And I think I started out in it in 2008. And when I think of how far it's come, like, and especially in Ireland, the amount of IP firms we have now, like, it's just, you know, it's huge in Dublin in particular. And then there's a few over in the West as well. But, um, yeah, I suppose in Ireland, you know, there's no necessity to have a qualification, but you can, um, the Irish, the intellectual property office hold an exam every year. So you can sit the exam to apply to be, go on the list of trademark agents uh, at the IP office here. And that exam, I think it's held every April. And there's three sections in it. You get the past papers and the syllabus on the, the IPOI website. And that's really why I wrote the book. Um, because way back when, when I would have been sitting that exam and more and more people were coming into IP, the Law Society and myself created a course uh, that I suppose was tailored towards that exam. Uh, and that's really why I wrote the book as well. So people can pick 
the book up and kind of go, right, what do I need to know for this exam? Um, then when you get that Irish exam, you can use that to get on the list of professional representatives over at the EU IPO. But you can also practice before the EU IPO as a legal representative or as an employee representative. You don't need the qualification, but it's, it's a nice qualification to have. Um, and then it's a little bit different in England for people who might want to qualify over there. They have a chartered institute of trademark attorneys over there. And back in my day, uh, I was kind of partly qualified over there. You, there was a load of exams to sit, but now it's all changed and you have to do postgraduate courses and stuff. And there's an IP regulation board. But again, that's a really good qualification uh, for people who, you know, people maybe who are starting out, who just come out of Black Hall, who might have done the Irish exam and may want to travel, may want to work elsewhere. And um, the thinking of the UK, that would be a good one to have as well. But yeah, definitely start with the Irish office and it's not that difficult. It really, it really isn't. There's some stinky questions on the exam papers, let me tell you, but um, just skip those and do the nice ones. That's it for another episode of Obiter Dicta. In part two of this episode coming next month, Helen discusses the important cases in this area. Thanks to Helen Johnson for joining us on the podcast and you can purchase the new edition of her book A Guide to Trademark Law and Practice in Ireland on bloomsburyprofessional.com It is also available to subscribers of Intellectual Property and IT on Bloomsbury Professional Online. Until next time, thanks for listening.